Hello, nerds, and welcome to episode 106 of Applied Science. Uh, this episode's just me, just Yogi, in the classic style, just some science news. Uh, of course, don't forget to follow me on all the socials, at Yogi Revan. And if you could subscribe to and rate this podcast wherever you listen to it, that would be really appreciated. Have you figured out what we're listening to yet? Listen till the end of the podcast and I'll let you know. Album of the year, in my personal opinion. So, we have a little science roundup to go through today. Some of what I thought were the most interesting stories or the most bizarre ones that maybe didn't get as much coverage as they should have. And as always, we're being critical of our sources, so we'll be sharing some details of uh, where these stories came from as we go. If you've been, if you read science headlines in the past couple of weeks, Mars and COVID are just dominating. And everything is Mars, 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 COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, so I thought you're probably bored of those. I don't want to dwell on them, but I also don't want to not include them. I thought about not including them. I don't know. Um, I thought about putting them last, but then that's like they're headlining. So let's just do them quick and get them out of the way. Okay. Mars. Uh, we landed the Perseverance rover. It's driving around Mars. It's checking things out. And the one thing I really want to focus on uh, with you today is that upon landing, one of the first things it saw was rocks with holes in them. And uh, hopefully some of those will eventually get brought back to Earth. Exactly how isn't mapped out yet. Um, but also Perseverance is going to be analyzing them. Uh, while while it's there, using various techniques. Uh, I don't want to go too much into that. But it's interesting that it found uh, rocks with holes. This is not the first time that we've found uh, rocks with holes on Mars. But the, the question that comes next is, what kind of rocks with holes? Um, so there's a couple different kinds. One you might be familiar with uh, if you're into self-care and giving yourself a, a what's it called? Dietary, a, a pedicure. Uh, I really recommend trying that out, actually. It, it's, it's really nice. Get yourself a pumice stone. So pumice is an igneous rock, uh, so you can think of it as volcanic, um, but that's not necessarily the best definition. If it's pumice if, or something like pumice, not only would that give clues of Mars's volcanic history, but it could also contain some trapped air. See, what pumice is, is it's, it's liquid rock that has gas embedded in it, in solution. And then what happens is it's uh, expelled from the earth or it depressurizes really quickly. And so those trapped gas inside of it, they'll expand because of the depressurization. And as it's depressurizing, it's also cooling down. And so it gets hard. And so that's when it turns into a rock. Um, so that, that's where pumice comes from. And one of the speculations are, is um, that that's how it came to be on Mars. And so that would potentially have some trapped little bubbles of gas inside the rock. And if we could get one of those, and if there's some gas that's completely trapped, we can see what the ancient Mars atmosphere was like. So that would be really cool. I suppose it's possible it's like coral or something else that's like biology related. Really not likely. You know, Mars is kind of like a barren hellscape. So if that's true, anything like coral or anything that was created by life, um, anything with a biosignature was probably uh, eradicated. It's possible. We're not ruling it out. Um, the other more likely 
option is that it's some kind of sedimentary rock. Like, for example, limestone uh, here on Earth, uh, water dissolves through limestone and it can eat away like different patterns and it can eat away uh, little holes like we're seeing here. Um, that could be likely since we're in a lake bed. That's where Perseverance landed. And um, some initial clues could tell, if uh, could tell us if this is likely. Like, for example, if it has rounded edges because water tends to leave things with rounded edges. If you don't know too much about uh, the Mars Perseverance rover, please check out Applied Science episode number 104, where me and Captain John recorded a sportscast-style coverage of the landing the day of the event. So if you want some of the basics from the ground up, that would be good for you. Or if you're just looking for a laugh, I think that we did a... That was kind of a fun episode to make. Um, scripted, not usual for us. On to COVID, and then let's... uh move on. Um, the Johnson Johnson shot received its emergency use authorization from the FDA in the U.S. As opposed to the other two vaccines that are approved in the U.S. at the moment for COVID, uh, this one's only one shot. There's a lot of debate going on about the effectiveness and how it compares. I don't want to get into it right now. Um, but it, it is interesting, and if for no other reason, it's great because, you know, we have to vaccinate 350 million people. Um, so the more vaccine that's available, the better. Telomeres. Telomeres are repeating strands of DNA at the end of our chromosomes. Uh, they're there to protect the DNA and the genetic information encoded within in the nucleus of our cells. Some people refer to biological age, so, you know, maybe you're 25 years old, and if you take really good care of yourself, you know, in theory, your biological age would be younger, or if you don't take very good care of yourself, your biological age would be older, um, and they, there's tests out there that calculate this so-called biological age, and what it's really doing is it's measuring the length of your telomeres, so that's how much, um, you know, your DNA is being protected a lot of this is still remaining to be proven. And some people are starting to suspect, though, that there's a relationship between the telomere length and the body's strength or weakness against coronavirus. Um, there's lots of articles out there talking about this, and I suggest you read them, but don't let any of them scare you into going out and getting a telomere length test because nothing's conclusive. Um, lastly, on the COVID front, even if you get vaccinated, even if everyone's vaccinated around you, please be careful. Socially distance, wear your mask. None of that is done yet. Um, there's just so much, um, I don't know. Some of them are stubborn people. Some of them are idiotic people. But you know, just please be safe and let's, let's try and get all of us back to as close to normal as we can, uh, as soon as we can. If you want to know more about COVID-19, sorry, it's another shameless plug, um, and the vaccines, check out uh, Applied Science episode 103, where I discuss these topics with Paige Lemon. She's a PhD student who kind of serendipitously found herself doing some COVID trials. And so that was, that was cool because she was, uh, she was flung into that adventure. She didn't necessarily choose it herself. All right, Mars and coronavirus out of the way. So let's talk about you. How are you doing? How are you holding up in this new world that we're living in? 
you know, uh, something that it has definitely taken off in the past year is video chatting, video conferencing. Uh, you know, we were already familiar with things like FaceTime and now Zoom and Microsoft Teams and uh, a litany of other options all exist. And that, that's not going to go away, even if life goes back to normal, quote unquote, tomorrow. I think that we're still going to be uh, video chatting a lot. But video chatting can get old, can it? A team at Stanford was looking into what drives uh, you know, Zoom calls or other similar calls being so exhausting. And so they, they narrowed it down to really four factors. Uh, the first one is that extreme amounts of close-up eye contact is intense. That, that takes a drain on, on your brain. Um, normally, you know, when you're in a room with someone, you're not staring them face to face, uh, while you have a conversation, you get to look around the room and look at them, look away, look around and look at them. And you can tell if somebody's paying attention to you, even if they're not, you know, staring you straight in the eye. Number two is that it's prolonged episodes of watching yourself on video. Um, that's fatiguing. So... You know, you can see yourself, whether it's in the corner, on half the screen, or whatever. And normally we don't see ourselves. So, you know, it would probably be pretty fatiguing if you went and had a one-hour conversation with your best friend while somebody else was holding a mirror up to yourself so that you could see yourself the whole time. be kind of distracting. Um, so these, these two have pretty obvious recommendations, right? So if you have a lot of time, whether it's for work or personal, uh, a lot of time on, on video calls for number one you turn turn the camera off sometimes give yourself a, a little break and number two try minimizing the window that shows you yourself um or you know see number one you can turn off the camera and then they can't see you and you can't see you uh, you know but but switch it around because there is something to be said for seeing other people uh in these days where we're not seeing much of anybody are we number three Video chats considerably lower your ability to move. I don't know if you can remember telephones that had actual cords, but I remember being a teenager in the 90s and walking around on the telephone. And there was a reason why they sold super long cords because, you know, you wanted to talk and you still wanted to maybe just pace and maybe do stuff around your house. Um, you can't really do that with video chats so much. I mean, my kids talk to their grandparents uh, on FaceTime, and they definitely say that they make them dizzy um, because they, they run around while they're on FaceTime. So I don't know that it exactly works just yet until we have drones with cameras pointed at us that follow us wherever we go. I don't think that moving around while on Zoom is going to be an option. And, and that's just creepy, the idea of drones following you around. That does exist. I, I, I saw a guy snowboarding and had a little drone following him. That was cool. Number four, and the final one, uh, the cognitive load is just much higher in video chats. You, you, you really see the details of a person's face. And so this is kind of related to number one, that the close-up eye contact is intense, but also you're really seeing the person's face. And so there's a lot of subtle context clues. Their, their nose might twitch or they might like look off to the side. And maybe that's just because their dog is scratching at the door or their dog walked in the room or something. But to you, you know, we're programmed to pay attention 
to these social cues. Um, but so that can be really, really distracting. All right. There's a story that I kind of want to get into. Um, this is a good one. This one's from Ars Technica. Uh, highly recommend Ars Technica. I think that they're a great source. Uh, they don't have uh, quote-unquote evil corporate ownership. They tend to be pretty independent. Um, and they do a good job of separating science from speculation. And sometimes speculation is good. That's all right. Um, but it's important to know what's what. And this story is a good example of that, uh, which is yet another reason why I found this story so interesting. So you may or may not know that um, the Earth's magnetic field has flipped in the past. In fact, it, it's flipped a lot of times. Um, the most recent major flip was approximately 780,000 years ago. Um, and it seems from evidence that we have from a, ver a variety of sources um, that that happens on average about once every 450,000 years. So that would suggest that we're well overdue for a flip um, where the North Pole would become the South Pole and the South Pole would become the North Pole. And there's a lot of speculation, you know, what actually happens when that happens. Um, the magnetic field of the Earth protects us from a lot of radiation out there. Um, radiation, you know, could yeah, it could burn you. You get a sunburn, that's radiation from the sun, even with the magnetic field. So it wouldn't be too safe to be, you know, walking around out on the surface of the Earth um, during... Uh, these periods of weakening that might happen around uh, a magnetic flip. Um, and also that radiation can do funky stuff to you and funky stuff to your, your DNA and, and whatnot. So um, right here from Mars Technica is study blames earth's magnetic field flip for climate change, comma extinctions. And the subtitle here is study suggests that one magnetic event caused everything from extinctions to art. And this is by John Timmer. Uh, I, I recommend you check out this article, but I do want to uh, go through it a little bit. Um, so here we're talking about uh, the magnetic field and, and it flipping. Uh, we know that it, if it did flip, it would weaken uh, before and after. Uh, but there's no crazy connection to anything. We, we, scientists have speculated for a long time that a magnetic flip might cause an extinction or might cause some kind of ecological upsets. And there's never been any evidence to support that. But a paper was published uh, a couple weeks ago in the journal Science, uh, which on one hand is some really good science, and on the other hand is a lot of, uh, what do they say here, provocative, hypothesizing, and unconstrained speculation. So, pretty strong words. Um, this story focuses around the cowrie trees. That's K-A-U-R-I. And that's a distinct uh, species of tree, which is native to New Zealand. One cool thing about these trees is that they live for about a thousand years. Um, and some of the wood from them ends up being buried in marshes uh, and preserved as, as a result. And that means that there are some trees that existed for a thousand years and they are tens of thousands of years old. So 
if you look at the things like the rings uh, and the space of the rings, uh, you can see, you know, what the climate was like that year. And you could also look for things like how much carbon-14, how much of a radioactive isotope of carbon exists in those rings. And that would indicate, you know, how much radiation that tree was getting hit with in each given year. And you could use carbon dating to figure out about when that was. So we're talking about, um, I, I mentioned just before, that the last major magnetic pole reversal was three quarters of a million years ago. Um, but in this case, we're talking about a brief uh, magnetic pole flip, which I guess doesn't actually change as a, a real magnetic pole flip because it needs to last for uh, thousands of years in order to be a permanent flip. So this is an incident which was called the La Champs excursion, um, which took place about 40,000 years ago. 40,000 years. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Um, they verified this uh, data against things like ice core records and uh, sediment core records, um, looking at, you know, other pieces of evidence that came from other sources on the Earth. Um, and, and this is how we do science, right? We gather evidence and we compare it with other evidence. And we say, hmm, when I look at this ice core sample, you know, the, the, the amount of bubbles when you go this far down, which I would, you know, believe to be this many thousands of years old, uh, suggests this about the, the composition of the atmosphere or the climate that year. And, hmm, that's interesting. I found these trees and the rings suggest this about the climate. Oh, and these two things actually match up. They support each other. This is what doing science is. Um, it's important that, you know, we challenge people who come with new claims. That's how science gets better. And so this is actually a really solid study in how it um, gathers some of the sheerly scientific information about things like the Earth's climate and how much radiation was hitting the Earth uh, at the time. And a lot of that does line up to things like sediment samples and ice core samples. Um, and so this is in New Zealand. So this is near Australia. So if it tells us anything about the climate, it's telling us things about the climate in that region of the world. So sometimes it's hard to, to make connections. Um, focusing on some time between 42,350 years ago to 41,800 years ago. Um, we're calling that 42 kilo years. So a kilo year would be a thousand years. So it's 42 kilo years. And since it's 42, uh, the researchers decided to name this event the Adams Transitional Geomagnetic Event uh, after the author Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and other stuff. Um, nerds. All of this, this data lining up indicates that the Earth wasn't the only thing doing something unusual at the time. Uh, so there's a, a lot of beryllium-10, which is a radioactive isotope of beryllium, um, that, they, that was found. And that is mostly formed by cosmic ray particles uh, hitting the atmosphere. So that's an indicator of enhanced solar activity. So it's possible that maybe there's some relationship between the sun's magnetic field and its uh, radiation and uh, what the Earth's magnetic field is doing at the same time. 
using carbon four. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this part directly. Using the carbon fourteen signature associated with the Adams event, the research the researchers identified the equivalent time periods in some sediment records, and both indicated that there were changes in the atmospheric circulation patterns that occurred during the event, which is consistent with an impact on climate. So something definitely changed forty-ish uh, thousand years ago. And then so the second part of this article, I love it, is called Speculation Time. So now let's try and think of some wacky things. So I've mentioned a couple times that this uh, incident took place about 40,000 or 42,000 years ago. Um, if you know your history, uh, we say that modern humans are about 40,000 years old. So uh, there's some speculation here that something about this magnetic event helped create modern humans, helped, uh, you know, make us into the species that we are. We also know that Australia saw uh, extinctions of some of its plant fauna, uh, giant animals, uh, that peaked roughly 42,000 years ago. And that suggests some sort of link. Uh, it wasn't so much rainfall, going on at the time in the Southern Hemisphere, or at least in that part of the world. Um, so, okay, so an impact on climate, again, still pretty scientific. Um, modern humans were actually um, in Central Asia for tens of thousands of years at that point, and they seemed to show up in Europe around the time of the Adams event. And sometime after that is when Neanderthals went extinct. Um, so 42,000 years ago is significant. Uh, it's not creating something. Uh, this is kind of a strong claim from, from the authors of this one. Um, so I'm going to read again. Uh, the period also sees a growth in the extent and sophistication of cave art by those modern humans. Um, so the researchers are trying to tie this event, you know, the fact that cave art got more elaborate around the time of the Adams event. Well, uh, some of that makes sense because you would think that humans would spend more time in caves when there's crazy strong radiation outside that uh, can burn you pretty quickly. Um, and they were using uh, red ochre um, as a pigment that they were drawing on these cave walls. And again, humans and Neanderthals had already been using red ochre for tens of thousands of years. Uh, but it, it is fair to, to uh, say that from the evidence that we have, that the art did get a lot more elaborate around this time. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I guess the other implication that they're really trying to get at here is that the radiation possibly did something to the humans, um, and whether it's a, a mutation in their DNA or otherwise, it, it doesn't come straight out and say, um, and we don't have a way to, to really test this one clean. Uh, but really great article. Uh, I recommend Ars Technica. They tend to be technology oriented, um, but they do a good job of science articles when they decide to write uh, science articles. So there's that. There's an electric truck maker. And they say that they're going to start making tractor trailers, you know, semis to, you know, haul goods uh, around in an electric truck. 
they call themselves Nicola, which I'm going to come out and say it just that that's lame. You're like, it's, it's a little weird to me sometimes. Cause yeah, Nikola Tesla was an amazing scientist. It's a little weird that now Tesla is a company, um, but it is what it is. And they're at least to some degree in some way, uh, living up to in the spirit of his name. So no judgment, but for this one, for this company to come along and call itself Nikola is just kind of lame. And recently, they were caught in multiple lies by the, uh, I, don't, I don't know what transit authority, but by some sort of government agency. Uh, like they said that they had a working prototype and they've not been able to produce that. And they also said that they own land from which it was mining materials for things like the batteries, and that also appears to have been a lie. So, uh, electric truck maker Nikola, what are you doing, man? Where, where do you think this is going to get you? Next story. You like dogs? I like dogs. So this is a story from New Scientist. Very different, um, very different source. Uh, I like New Scientist. I recommend you check it out. Uh, I've said this in past recordings and some of the videos I've made. Take what you read at New Scientist with a grain of salt and really read what they're actually saying. They're very willing to post stuff that's really new ideas that hasn't been proven or disproven. And they'll say things like, there are researchers who are working to try and see if there's some value to this idea. That doesn't mean that that thing is true. People or shitty science journalists often take things that are published in New Scientist and then they make these outlandish, crazy headlines. Say, New Scientist is reporting that this is true. No, they're not saying that it's true. They're saying that there's people doing some research. Let science happen. But New Scientist has uh, a cool article uh, this past week about dogs. Um, speculating, or I guess more than speculating, that dogs came to America with the earliest humans that came over from Asia um, across into Alaska. So dogs were domesticated somewhere probably at least 27,000 years ago. Researchers in the University of Buffalo in New York, what's up Anchor Bar, they extracted DNA from the oldest known dog remains found in the Americas. And they found that the genetic signature is consistent with dogs from Siberia from uh, a little bit before that. So that is, that, that's good indication that dogs came from Siberia to America sometime around 17,000 years ago, which lines up with when humans came across uh, for the first time. And so this is a small bone that they had. This is not a new bone. It was found in the late 1990s in Lawyer's Cave in southeast Alaska. And it's just one centimeter in diameter. And they didn't even know it was a dog bone. They, they carbon dated it. And they thought it was a human bone back in the 90s. And so this team in Buffalo, what they did was they extracted some DNA from it, from the marrow, I suppose. I'm, I'm speculating there. Um, and they figured out that it was a dog. And so from that, they identified that it's actually uh, the top of the thigh bone, like the, 
the head that, that goes into the, the hip. So that's pretty radical. And... Oh, and they also redated it and found out that it's even older than they thought that it was. Uh, there's another earliest dog, uh, and the team that got beat said, uh, we're very happy to lose our record as this new Alaskan dog represents an important piece of the puzzle. So dogs are cool, and they've been cool for thousands of years. Don't you forget it. All right, let's change it up. Technology lightning round. One, Apple seems to be doing everything they can to get rid of all their iMacs, suggesting that there's going to be a major redesign just around the corner. And that kind of thing typically comes in the first half of the year. Will they do something different because the pandemic? Who knows? But they did just reopen all their U.S. stores. So maybe that's a sign. Please don't call me a fanboy. I'm sorry. But story number two, also coming from Apple. Uh, rumors have it that the next iPhone, uh, the iPhone 12 presumably, might have reverse charging. So it's unclear what exactly this might mean. Um, maybe it can charge headphones or watches uh, or other peripherals while charging. Um, or maybe you can like sacrifice some phone battery in order to charge those things on the go. Uh, it remains to be seen. Um, but that would be that would be a kind of neat uh, ability for it to have. I'm going to be honest. I, I kind of hate doing technology stories because it just ends up being so corporate. But our third and final story for this technology lightning round is that Gatorade has come out with a patch which you put on your skin and it connects through Bluetooth to your smartphone and it tells you how hydrated you are and it tells you how much more Gatorade you're supposed to drink. Uh, groan. Okay. Um, last story for today. We are talking about the current in the Atlantic. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the, the jet stream. And that's the flow of the atmosphere. And there's also the Gulf Stream. And in the Atlantic specifically, uh, the Gulf Stream represents the flow of the water in the Atlantic. And a major part of that is called the AMOC. That's the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. Uh, it's a major part of the Gulf Stream, and it brings warm water in the Atlantic from the U.S. side, north and east, to the European side. And so scientists are saying that the flow there is uh, drastically reducing, um, certainly steadily over the last 12 or so years. And they believe that it's the lowest that it's been in a thousand years uh, remains that was found in Illinois in 2018. And that was just a couple hundred years younger than this one. So, so it got beat out for the title of the oldest dog fossil uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, or in, you know, in the Americas. So with this reduced flow, there's a couple downsides. One, it doesn't bring warm water to Europe, which can lead to extreme cold weather in Europe. Number two, uh, it leads to rising sea levels on the east coast of the U.S., especially in New York and New England. And when we're talking about 12 years or so, uh, Superstorm Sandy, which definitely did flood a lot of New York and New England, um, 
you know, it's definitely something to be conscious of. And the third uh, downside of this reduced flow is that it leaves that warmer water closer to the equator. And warm water close to the equator can lead to a much more stronger and much more active hurricane season. And we're just coming off of the 2020 hurricane season where there was more named storms than ever before. I forget what we made it up to, but eventually we went we went through the full alphabet. So there's at least 26 storms. And then I think we got up to like, we started using Greek letters. I forget what we got up to, like Epsilon or something. So, so that's all I got for you today. Nice, short episode. I really do appreciate you guys listening. If you like this as much as I like making it, uh, I'll ask you if you could go to Kofi, that's K-O-F-I.com, or maybe it's pronounced coffee. I don't know. In theory, it's where you buy somebody a coffee. And I'm not asking for a huge donation here. Uh, what the site recommends is three bucks. So it's like you're buying me a coffee. Um, and any donations there or any any support there will all go towards making this show better. Um, we do have some more great guests lined up. Uh, and so really looking to continue this as a weekly thing. So I hope you're enjoying it. Tell a friend uh, if you want to be involved somehow. Uh, reach out to me. I'm certainly receptive to that. And, um, yeah, and just genuinely, thanks for listening. I got a somewhat of a little recording studio going on, but it's certainly not soundproof. Do you hear the, the nighttime sounds of Puerto Rico outside? One of the things you hear is the coquee frog. It's, it's really rad. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll talk more about that sometime. For now, let's go back to it just came out in the past week. It features seven tracks, and they're each 30 minutes long. It's brought to you by Lego, and it's called the Lego White Noise album. <clears throat> it's available wherever you stream music, and it's it's really wild. And you can find a short video on, on YouTube or Facebook or wherever uh, if you just look up Lego White Noise and it's really wild how much work they did. Uh, they talk about like getting used to the bricks as if they're an instrument before they compose, you know, a symphony. And it's really cool. Part of this episode, when I was getting my notes together, was written and outlined while I was listening to it. So it definitely, yeah, it's it, it has a cool calming effect. Everyone can recognize the noise of Legos. I think I freaked out my wife because I think she heard it from the next room and she thought kids were dumping out Legos. Uh, some tracks really are like dumping out Legos. Some are like clicking and unclicking Duplos. And um, some are, are just like searching. And so this track is called Searching for the One Brick. And you, you should check it out, man. I, I'm telling you. Album of the Year. I appreciate all you guys listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day. The album of the year. So maybe it's a little premature to call uh, something to be the album of the year uh, already. So this is...